Good morning. How's everybody doing? That was a mixed answer. Usually we say, how's everybody doing? Good. There's this canned general response that everyone has. And we're so used to that. We're so used to just putting on a smile, especially when you're in church. I'm in church. I'm a Christian. I have to have it all together, right? I have to put this mask on. But are we honest when people ask that? Are we honest with ourselves, how we are doing? And is it okay to suffer and be honest with God? What we're going to see in the next few weeks in the second book of the Psalms, we're going to study many Psalms of lament. Psalms that show the psalmist being honest with their own sin and their own brokenness before God. Being honest about their sin, about their struggles, and being honest with their God. Psalms of lament are rarely pretty and rarely talking about life's best situations. But they're so instructive because like we said last week, the church has very little, the church by and large has very little to say about suffering, but scripture has much to say about it. And where do we go when we struggle? And the the main question we're going to ask this morning is how does a downcast soul find peace? Where do we find peace when we struggle? Augustine, one of the early church fathers, Augustine of, of Hippo, say Augustine of Hippo because we're all saints, not just Augustine. He said this, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What a beautiful truth that God has made us to have communion with him, and there's a restlessness within us. Our hearts are incomplete until we find our rest in him. And the psalmists understand that when they have a restless heart and a restless soul. And so many of those who went before us have those same struggles. We looked at a few last week. We looked at Martin Luther and we looked at Charles Spurgeon. This morning we're going to look at William Cowper, who was a hymn writer. We actually sung one of his hymns earlier. There's a fountain filled with blood. He was one of the most famous poets and writers of his day. He was a contemporary of John Newton. The, the famous slave trader who was converted into pastor and hymn writer. John Newton became his pastor. William Cowper was one of the most um, famous and prolific uh, hymn writers and poem writers of his day. But he struggled with severe depression his entire life. He, his life was marked by personal anguish. At five, his, his mother died, and he was a scrawny kid. And so he was always picked on and, and, and bullied. He was never respected by the older children. Normal circumstances of life terrified him. He actually went and studied law and didn't do too well there. And he was, there was one story about him interviewing for a position in the government. And they had to examine him for this position. He completely closed up and he was so terrified by being uh, examined by someone else that it literally drove him mad. And he went crazy in the interview and He eventually was locked up in an insane asylum for a while. And he attempted suicide many times. So after getting out of the hospital, he moved to this small town in England called Olney. And And that's where John Newton was was pastor. John Newton became his friend and his mentor. Then he knew that as his depression was growing, he tried to lift his friend's spirits. And so he knew being a passionate man he would encourage him to write. And so they wrote a hymnal together, and they wrote several hymnals together. Amazing Grace being one of the songs in that hymnal, William Cowper writing the fifth verse. 
And as the only hymns were released and Cowper began to write, he was introduced to the world and he became famous. But he battled with depression until his death, even doubting his salvation regularly. But what was amazing about Cowper is in his own weakness, it drove him to the Lord and he used the gifts that God has given him to glorify God. And so this week I've been reading his poetry and reading his hymns and I want to share some of them with you. He used his gifts to revive the downcast soul. We sung, there's a fountain filled with blood earlier. This one, many of you may know, the hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want to read a couple verses. The English is a little archaic for us, but hopefully you, you get the sense. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. This is from Joy and Peace and Believing. Sometimes a little light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing on His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, even let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but He will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe His people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed, and he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. This is from Peace After a Storm. When darkness long has veiled my mind, and smiling day once more appears, then, my Redeemer, then I find the folly of my doubt and fears. Oh, let me then at length be taught what I am still slow to learn, that God is love and changes not, nor, nor knows the shadow of a turn. But, O oh, my Lord, one look from Thee subdues the disobedient will, drives doubt and discontent away, and Thy rebellious worm is still. Thou art ready to forgive as I am ready to repine. Thou therefore all praise receive. Be shame and self-abhorrence mine. You see in this godly man a grasp of the, the, the human language and the power of emotion in words, yet a conflicted soul. Very much like we see in Psalm 42, the conflicted soul of the psalmist. And so let's open our Bibles to Psalm 42 and see how we can glorify God when our soul is conflicted. So we said last week these two psalms are separated by a chapter distinction. Um, and I'll give you a few reasons why as we, as we go on, but I think these two psalms belong together. I think it is three stanzas of uh, a, an, an ascending hymn. And so I want to read it together. We spent most of our time last week on verses 1 through 5. This week we're going to finish chapter 42 and also go into 43. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you downcast? Cast down my soul. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. O God, my God, I will ever praise you. O God, my salvation, my help. In times of trouble. Sometimes these words have no meaning. When things are going well in our lives. But when there is difficulty in our lives, these words ring so true like a gong in our ears. Lord, I pray that as we seek to teach and learn from the whole counsel of God, that we learn from its high praises and we learn from its low laments, that we learned to shout your name in praise, hallelujah, to our God who has redeemed us, and cry out for help when we are beaten by your breakers and your waves. Lord, I pray that this time this morning will be a comfort to those who are hurting, that it will be an encouragement to those who feel far from you. And that in times of trouble, we would learn to go to your word and draw on the depths of the encouragement of the Psalms. I pray that your spirit would teach us and guide us and instruct us according to your word and remind us of all that Jesus taught us, that in the gospel is our answer to all the anxieties, depression, and downcastness of our souls. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of where we were last week. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And so 
Quickly, we saw this thirst in the psalmist, this longing for the living God that could not be satisfied any other way. And he remembered, he looked back at the joy of worship and he longed to be with God's people. He longed to be in Jerusalem in the festal gatherings and the shouts of praise before his God. And his soul is in turmoil. One of the things that we looked at last week that was very helpful for me and hopefully it was helpful for, for you. We looked at a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. He actually wrote on this psalm. So I want to read you an excerpt from that quote again. I think it is so helpful. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? We spent some time on that. We listen to the voices in our head. We listen to the lies instead of reminding ourselves of the gospel. Instead of speaking to ourselves, we let our flesh dictate what we think and what we feel. He, he cues in on this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressed within him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. This is great counsel when we are discouraged and we are cast down within our own soul. Self, listen. Pay attention. I'm not going to listen to your lies anymore. You're no longer going to lead me astray with these fleeting emotions that change according to my situation. My hope is in God. I will again praise Him, my God and my salvation. I'm going to no longer meditate on the what and whys of my situation and continue to run my present circumstances over and over and over in my head like this hamster wheel that you can never get out of. But I'm going to meditate on the who of my salvation, putting my hope in my living God who is worthy of my praise. And even though when I draw further away, he never changes and he never leaves. That's where we began last week. We're going to pick up in verse 6. So I just want to address this because I forgot to mention this. I forget that you guys are, some of you are looking up on the screens, and so this should encourage you to read your Bibles. Um, there's an interesting break in the text here. And so I was reading, and I think the ESV gets this correct here, that the last phrase at the end of 42, or excuse me, at the end of verse 5, my salvation and my God, I think and my God belongs in verse 5. It's consistent with the refrain, the, the, the chorus that we see in all three stanzas here. So this break actually comes from the Masoretic text, which uh, have Jewish notations about uh, where, where we pause, where we create chapter divisions, where we create uh, verse divisions. This is from about 1000 A.D. But I think if, if you break it up, it, it breaks the, the rhythm of the psalm. Either way, we're going to go with what um, the ESV has. So we're seeing that last line in verse 5, my salvation and my God, as part of the previous section. Um, so just a quick note if you're wondering about that. So we're going to pick up here in verse 6 proper, in my estimation, for whatever that's worth. Um, my soul is cast down within me. So we pick up where we left off. He's having a difficult time. He is asking himself questions. He's talking to himself, but he goes right back to his downcast soul. He goes right back to saying, my soul is downcast within me. He tells himself to hope in God. He reminds himself of a God who is worthy of his praise. But his soul is still conflicted. His soul is still cast down within him. The discouragement is still there. 
And what does he do? Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Miser. We said this last week. Jerusalem is the center of Israelite life. The sons of Korah were, were, were Levites. They were tasked with, with writing songs, singing songs, and playing the music to these songs in worship. This place he's talking about, the wilderness of Jordan and Mount Hermon. It's on the other side of the Jordan. It is outside of Jerusalem. And so he is longing in his downcast soul for Jerusalem, looking toward home. There's this soulful homesickness. And he's thinking of the Lord while he's far from home. Therefore, I remember. And so his, in his present circumstances, soul is, is longing to be back in the presence of God, in the presence of God's people in Jerusalem, where God's presence dwells and God's people worship, and where he leads worship, as we saw last week. So it made me think this week, what do we do when it feels like God is far away? What do we think of? What do we remind ourselves of? Because the psalmist feels like God is far away, but it isn't God who's moved, it's Him who's moved. He is no longer in the presence of God and He longs for it. We must train ourselves to remember when it feels like God is far away. We must speak to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. We must remind ourselves that our God is omnipresent, our God is omniscient, our God is omnipotent. And he is not limited by our present circumstances that feel like God is far away. We need to remind ourselves of the truth instead of listening to the lies. So he goes on to describe his present situation in verse 7. This psalmist who in verse 1 is panting for flowing streams, he wants living water. All he finds is violent storms. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. There's this picture of the waters reaching out to each other, conspiring against one another. Spurgeon says this, The deep waters above and below, they clasp hands. So it seems that heaven and earth unite to create a tempest around him. He's standing under the waterfall, breaking over him. Deep cries out to deep. The continual flow of heavy water on his head. When will this stop? How long am I going to feel beat up by your waterfalls? There's another analogy here. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Like someone stranded at sea, wave after wave keeps beating him. And he is beaten and he is stranded. All your waterfalls, all your waves. Notice what he does here. Look what he repeats three times. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He recognizes that the Lord is Lord of all. Even in his suffering, it is the Lord's waterfall. It is the Lord's waves. It is the Lord who is crashing against him. This is not a distant God who doesn't know the sufferings of his people. This is a God who is ever-present, even in calamity. Directing it for his purpose. Our suffering and the suffering of the psalmist does not negate God's sovereignty. In the midst of it, he knows who's responsible. 
but he also knows who to cry out to. Spurgeon, one of his most famous lines, Cherie's favorite quote from Spurgeon, she even got the t-shirt literally, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. This is a beautiful sentiment. Because if it is, if God sees fit to crash his waves over me, that it may throw me against him, I will kiss them. I will praise the God who loves me enough to break me so that I may be drawn to him. I may be thrown against him. Can you thank God for your suffering? Can you praise him when things are difficult? Can you say, thank you, Lord, for this affliction because it has drawn me closer to you? So this psalmist kind of comes to his senses a little bit. He's dealing with the anguish of his heart and the the water that is constantly over him. But then he reminds himself of his God and his God who is ever present. Verse 8, by the day the Lord commands his steadfast love. The Lord commands the waves and the breakers, but he also commands his love. This word, we do not get the sense of it in English. Steadfast love, hesed, in Hebrew. It means covenant loyalty. It means my God, who is my God, is loyal to me. His steadfast love is never failing. He will never leave me. Your hesed, you command to me. I am reminded that your love will never fail me. I know who my God is. And in addition, he remembers the love of the Lord and he sings his praises. And at night, his song is with me. I urge you, when you are struggling, one of the best things, one of the greatest joys to your soul is to sing God's praises. To remind yourself of the songs that that we sing when, when we're joyful, they're meant to be an encouragement when we're in lament. The command of this Lord's steadfast love by day, his songs at night, and a prayer to the God of his life. He recognizes his very life is in God's hands. That's why he can sing his praises. And in this barrage of, of waves and waterfalls, what is his comfort? The love of God. The praises of God. Prayers to his God. This reminded me there's so many parallels in Jonah. We know Jonah, the, kid that, the, the story that every kid's book has to have. Usually it never gets to the point of the story or the gospel, but it's a man and, and, and a fish. But when Jonah prays, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah. And if you don't know where Jonah is, go past the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, go into the minor prophets, Hosea, comes after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. So Jonah, while he's in the belly of the beast, the belly of the fish, look what he prays. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Look at all the similarities here. And Jonah understands this quite literally. And this is not allegory, by the way. Jonah is in a fish here. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Sound familiar? Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. 
Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What is the desire of Jonah when God's waves are beating him? To be in the presence of God. To look back to his holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds here are wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. That means he's really deep. He's at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land, the land that's at the bottom of the ocean, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Also familiar here. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He knows where to direct his prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Hesed. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to see in just a few moments in chapter 43 that the psalmist can't wait to get to the temple and sacrifice to the Lord and go to the altar and claim the Lord's salvation. It is your salvation. I will pay whatever I need. Just save me. Jonah, just like the psalmist, knows that his life is in God's hands. And no matter what happens, he is secure. Whether in the mountains of of Hermon or in the belly of a beast at the bottom of the ocean. So I think it's important to note here that there is a tendency to think that God is not present in our sufferings. And I've heard many well-meaning and uh, theologically incorrect Christians say that God was not there. That is not God's will. God had nothing to do with that. If God had nothing to do with suffering, you should fear everything. Because if God is not in control of one thing, He's not in control of anything. Do you really want a God who is not sovereign in suffering? Do you really want a God whose hands are tied when you're hurting? Or do you want a God who is ever present in your affliction? Even the wicked and sinful things in our life, he works out for good. So often, our affliction is for our sanctification. We are afflicted to remind us how much we need him and to drive us to him in prayer. Because if things go too good for too long, we know we will forget him. We will be in our own mountain of of, of Hermans, not looking to Jerusalem, but with our back toward Jerusalem. But our afflictions bring us back. This is why the psalmist can say and pray in verse 9, I say to God, my rock. Even in the midst of the storm, even in just a moment, he's going to talk about his enemies. He says, my God, my rock, my refuge. There's a parallel here to 43.2. My rock of ages. When you are being beaten by the waves, the most immovable object is a rock. He is clinging to the rock, the rock of comfort, his life raft in the storm. He is tossed and he is beaten around by the waves, but he knows he will not drown because he is firmly planted on the rock. And he still says, my rock, my God. This is possessive language. He knows whose he is. He's clinging to the rock. He's not letting go to his God, but he's still yelling out in the storm, why have you forgotten me? being beaten by the waves, the water falls on his head, holding the rock. Why have you forgotten me? This is a conflicted man. He goes on. 
Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This word mourning in the Hebrew literally means to be dark, to be black with despair. Why am I black with despair? It is usually connected to God's wrath and deep darkness. The old mystics, the early church fathers, called this the dark night of the soul. Way darker than Christian Bale. That's for a couple of you guys. Um, There's this deep spiritual darkness crying out to God, why do I go on mourning? Why? Why have you forgotten me? Even though we know in our minds that our God will never forsake us. When we are overcome with our feelings, it is so easy to feel forsaken. It is so easy to let ourselves speak to us instead of speaking to ourselves. Listening. Why have you forgotten me? He knows he hasn't forgotten me. He just prayed to his God. But in the same breath, he says, my God, he says, why have you forgotten me? He knows his God. He knows his God is not forgotten, but he is listening to himself instead of talking to himself. But I want to encourage some of you. Some of you who knows what this feels like on a regular basis. The Lord has used this in your life to have a deeper and closer relationship with him than I will ever have. Because when you're being beaten by the waves and the waterfall is on your head, you know you, have, you do not have your own strength to rest on. God is breaking his ways over you because he loves you. Because when you cry out to him, you are never closer to him when you have nothing to cling to but him. But his spiritual anguish does not end there. His spiritual anguish becomes physical. Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones. This is a a simile. It means murder in my bones. There is death in my bones. His spiritual anguish has become physical. It hurts down to his very bones. And my adversaries taunt me while they say all the day long, where is your God? Between the deadly wounds and the, the, the taunting, there's a picture here of someone who is, who is mortally wounded in battle. There is death in my bones and my enemies are taunting me. Someone who is on the ground bleeding and their enemies are standing over them. Where is your God now? In himself, he has no recourse whatsoever. They're standing over him. Where is your God all the day long? I'll be honest, I have never felt pain like that. But some of you have. And I pray that God gives you solace and teaches you to come to him in these times and brings you comfort. And we can be, comfort, we can be a comfort to one another in those times. Because let's be honest, most of us do not have adversaries like that. No one is standing over us all day long saying, where is your God Unless you're trying to argue with fools on the internet and don't waste your time. But often, our greatest adversary is ourself. How often does our self accuse us? How often does our self lie about us? How often does our self say, where is your God? Where is God now? Why didn't God help you in this time? Where is your God? Has God forgotten you? God's forgotten me. Maybe God's 
gone. Maybe I've gone away. We can be, we can be our own worst enemies sometimes. Our, our flesh fights against us daily. Where is your God? And so then again he says, verse 11, Why are you cast down? O oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Because in the moment when you say this, you feel like this is just me. No one could ever understand. No one has been to the depths that I've been to. No one feels the turmoil or this loud yelling anguish that we talked about last week within me. But I would argue that someone has. Our Savior has. Jesus expressed this very same emotion on the Mount of Gethsemane. Look at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is a physical inward agitation that manifests itself outwardly. The, the same turmoil word that is a shouting of the soul is what's going on here. And he says very same words. The, the, the terminology in, in Greek actually um, parallels the, the uh, Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, cast down, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Some of you stop your prayers right there when you should continue. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Our Savior can empathize in our weakness. He cried out to God until blood came out of his forehead. Our high priest endured the most dark and downcast soul that has ever existed because he knew that he had to take on the weight of sin and the wrath of God for us. Take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize in our weakness. We have a high priest who's tempted in every way, yet without sin. He went before us so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, and death to sin, and new life, by our faith in him, he is our hope. He is our God. He is our salvation, and we shall again praise him. So when Christ cries out, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, becoming death, a curse for us, death on a cross, so that we might pray with confidence, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we ask ourselves, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? We should also ask ourselves, why don't you hope in God? Why don't you praise him? Why don't you remind yourself that he is your salvation? That because of Christ, we have hope and we are not hopeless. I want to remind you of the rhythm, rhythm that we went through, this, this great 
refrain here. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The first thing we saw last week, hope in God. This is a commandment, not a suggestion. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him. Our countenance should be that of praise, even in the midst of turmoil. Hope in God, the command. Our countenance, I shall again praise Him. And our connection, my salvation, my God. There is a possessive covenant relationship. My salvation, my God. You are connected to the living God. That is why you can have hope in Him. He is yours. You are His. You are His people. He is your God if your faith is indeed in Him. You can command yourself hope in God with a countenance of praise connected to God, your salvation. That is the power of this refrain that we see three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And so, so far in verses 1 through 5, he's looked back into the past. I remember when I used to do this. Remember when I used to lead worship. In verses 6 through 11, he looks at the present. In his present situation, he looks back. He's looking back at Jerusalem while he's in the mountains, while he feels the water on his head, while his enemies are surrounding him, accusing him. Now the tone changes in this third stanza here because his approach is more hopeful. Some of the same sentiments, but there's more confidence as he looks to the future in chapter 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceit and unjust man, deliver me. Against the accusations of the wicked, who are always in opposition to, the, to God and to God's people. He calls out for his judge, vindicate me. His defender, defend my cause. And his deliverer, deliver me from these unjust men. I thought, how appropriate. This is perfect. This is a great reminder that Christ is our judge. He vindicates us according to his blood and his righteousness. By our faith in him, we are vindicated through his finished work. Vindicate me, my judge, O God, and defend my case. Christ is our judge, but he is also our defender, our high priest, who intercedes for us before the Father and against the ungodly. He intercedes for us, and He lives to intercede for us, and He is interceding for us. He is our defender, in addition to our judge. But we don't stop there. When the psalmist cries out, deliver me, Christ is also our deliverer. And when He comes again in clouds of glory, He will finally deliver us from this fallen world. Our judge, our defender, our deliverer. Everything that the psalmist cries out for, we have in Christ. And we talk about this so often when we speak of salvation. We so often in Christian culture see salvation as one point in time. When did you decide to receive Jesus? That's usually how it sounds when they say that. But we have seen throughout the scriptures that our salvation, we have been saved. It is, it is, it is past tense because it is completed in Christ's righteousness. We are justified in him. Our judge has justified us. We have been saved. But we also are being saved. Our high priest, our defender, is sanctifying us. We are slowly and growing into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Yet we still await the coming of our deliverer, who is yet 
to save us fully, where we see our salvation complete when he makes all things new in the new heavens and new earth, and he ushers us into his kingdom forever. Our judge has saved us. Our defender is saving us. And our deliverer will save us. The fullness of our salvation seen in a prayer hundreds of years before Christ, yet still inspired by the Spirit and so applicable to us. So when we feel cast down, remember our judge, our defender, and our deliverer. And it is the same person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he remembers. Four. This is, this is contingent. He understands, okay, I can make these pronouncements. I can make these declarations. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. This is a parallel to 42.9. We just saw this. My God, my rock. It's a little stronger here. He knows that he's taking refuge in the rock. He knows the truth. He knows where he should go. But his feelings are telling him differently. He knows who his judge is. He knows who his defender and his deliverer is. But he still says, why have you rejected me? His soul is conflicted. It seems like he's rejected because his feelings are lying to him. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? The same thing we saw in verse 9. But now he sees a solution. He gets bold with God. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. From breakers and waves, your waves, your breakers, to now your light and your truth. There's a progression here. There's a growth here. Send them to me. Do you notice then in verse 1 and verse 3, these are all commands. He's commanding God, vindicate me, defend me, deliver me, send me your light and your truth. There is an appropriate time to command God. He is appealing to the hesed of his God, the covenant love of his God. You have promised to deliver me. You have promised to protect me. You have promised to defend me. You have promised that your light and your truth will, will guide me. Send them, I need them. This is a good and faithful prayer. This is not arrogant. This is a man who knows his God and knows that his God listens and his God is faithful even when he doubts. Send me your light and your truth. Let them lead me. What do we know as the light and truth of God? What is the light of God? The light of the world is the sun. What is the truth of God? The spirit of truth. Again, this, this psalmist is praying way beyond his pay grade. <laughs> Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Your light, the light of the world, the sun, praying to the Father. Send me your truth, the spirit of truth. He is glorifying the Father, Son, and Spirit in this request. The testimony of the Son by the Spirit. God's word leads us. Let them lead me. And where does it lead? Let them bring me to your holy hill. We don't understand this in English vernacular, but the holy hill is the temple mount, Mount Zion, the mountain in Jerusalem in which the temple was built across, uh, uh, upon. Send your light and your truth and let them lead me to your holy hill. That's where God dwells, in your dwelling. 
This is where your people worship. This is where I can come before you in songs of praise. This is where I can offer my sacrifices. He has this homesickness of the soul. From your waves and your breakers, give me your truth and your light to lead me to your hill and your dwelling. Even in the midst of his darkness, he is still fully locked into his God. Praise God that through Christ, he brought the hill to us. The mount of worship that was only acceptable, the very presence of God that was only acceptable on the temple mount took on flesh and walked among us. Lived a sinless life and went to the cross so he might die to reconcile us to himself. And he rose again that we might have new life in him. And when we put our faith in him, he makes his home with us. He has brought the mountain to us. What would our church look like? What would our worship look like if we desired to draw near to his holy mountain like that? What would our worship look like if we desired to draw near to the dwelling place of God like that? What would we look like if we walked in here every Sunday morning? I want to be in the place of God's dwelling with God's people. Your spirit and your truth lead me there. And how many do the opposite? How many retreat when it gets difficult? How many, instead of looking back to the Lord and longing to be in his presence, you want to be anywhere but near God and his people? You want to be alone in your sufferings, circle the wagons, curl up in a fetal position, and stay there until you die. How's that working out? And I understand the irony of me saying that to while you're sitting here. But we must remember that in our own lives and in the lives of of others. Do you desire to draw near? When people tell you that they're a Christian and they love the Lord, do they desire to draw near? Or if they, they have a temple of their own making? Are they looking to God's presence where God's people are? This psalmist longs for the worship of God and, we, and he says, If you deliver me, then, verse 4, I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He longs for the worship. And his joy is rightfully placed in God. Look what he says four times in this verse. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Locked in on his God. He is more hopeful. There's a future optimism that comes here. Deliver me so I can go back before you, so I can approach the altar. Another thing we see here in the, the altar, the altar was inside the temple for sacrifices. So there were, there were uh, sacrifices of, of thanksgiving, and there were sacrifices for sin. We don't know what the psalmist w- was, was going through. Either he wanted to make a sacrifice to praise God for delivering him, or he needed to make a sacrifice for sin. But either way, he could not wait to go to the altar so that he could be right before God and praise him. What is beautiful for us is that Christ is the final sacrifice. We have no need for an altar because his blood spilled gives us access to him at any time. We can go to him. Knowing that he has delivered us should lead to doxology, should lead us to praise him. He has delivered me. Then I will go to my God, my exceeding joy. Christ is all of these things, the final sacrifice, our exceeding joy, the one who we should praise with the lyre. Just an old school Hebrew version of a guitar. 
I will make music to my God. Because I know at my altar, or at his altar, when a sacrifice is given, I am reconciled to God. We should know that because the sacrifice is given through Christ, we are reconciled to God. And we can boldly approach his throne. So not everyone reads it this way, but I like to read verse 5 of 43 as if the tone changes because I think it does. So far, we've seen the past. My soul desires the Lord. He remembers the Lord in his distress, hope in God. In the present, his soul is cast down because the waters and adversaries praise him again. But in distress, God is his judge, his defender, his deliverer, and his praise. As he looks forward, this is more hopeful. Now, when he questions himself, it almost seems foolish. This is the third time now. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I hope the psalmist stands up straight when he says this. And I hope by the time you get to verse 5 of chapter 43, you stand up straight when you say this. Hope in God. I will praise him again, my God and my salvation. This needs repetition. Why? Why do we need to say this three times? Do you think he got it the first time? How many times do we need to be reminded? How many times do we pray for something and it feels like it is never going to happen? How many times do we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness and that we can go to him and that we should praise him? This is good for the psalmist and this is good for us. Because each time the problem is a situation, outside of him or inside of him. And each time the answer is the hope in God, his salvation. So quickly I want to leave you with some some remedies to this. Remedies, God's means of grace. How does God left us with grace until Christ returns? What has he given us? First, we should look to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to move through these kind of quickly. So it will be up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is called a grace. And look how Peter addresses suffering within the church. And how we should have a proper perspective. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, a grace of God, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We're not talking about suffering that is self-inflicted. Suffering unjustly. Self-inflicted suffering comes next. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If you sin, you should be beaten for it. If you sin, you should suffer the consequences. This is different. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You have not been called to health and wealth. You have been called to share in the sufferings of Christ. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. We should not be so beat up about suffering because Christ suffered for us, leaving you an example so that you might follow him in his steps. Now, granted, this is talking to people who are facing real persecution by real enemies right now. But the spiritual equivalent still applies. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted himself to the Father, the just judge, as should we. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that 
we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our suffering should remind us of the gospel and point us to Christ. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of your, of your souls has not left us alone. He has left us remedies. He has left us means of grace in this time of his absence. And one of them is his word, which we spend so much time in. I could go to so many passages. But I want you to turn to Psalm 119. And yes, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm. And as much as I'd love to, we are not going to read the whole thing. But I want to show you what Psalm 119 has to say about affliction and suffering. And you'll see many parallels here. So I want to just fly through some of these passages, and you can write these down and spend some time in it. Meditate on Psalm 119. I do it often, and it is such a joy and encouragement to me. Psalm 119, starting in verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. So similar to what we've been looking at. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction for the sake of sanctification. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Some of you who think God is absent in your affliction, your God is too small and yourself is too big. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It is the law of the Lord who is sustaining the psalmist and who should, and should sustain us. 105. We know this one well. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, send your light and your truth and may lead me to your presence. 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. 114. You are my hiding place and my shield, my rock. I hope in your word. 131. I open my mouth and pant like a deer pants for water because I long for your commandments. 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. 153. Or excuse me, 147 is a good one. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. 153, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. 174 and 175 is like the close of these psalms. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. We look in our suffering and in our struggles to Christ first as our example. But he has left us with his word. He has also left us with something so obvious and so simple, yet we forget so often. James 5.13. We know this. Short, simple verse. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. How simple that is and how often we forget. Do we go to God first in our prayers or do we go to him last? 
The psalmist teach us to pray and teach us to be honest with God. And then the last thing here, he has given us other believers. He has given us the church. Not a building, not a service, not a list of obligatory actions, but the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The entire book of 2 Corinthians, we've used it for our call to worship the last two weeks, is about comfort. The church in Corinth has grown a lot since the first letter. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that he comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see how this works? Our God comforts us so we can comfort one another. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that if you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. There is suffering in the Christian life. It is guaranteed. Christ said, if they hate me, they will hate you. But it is for our comfort and for the comfort of one another. Let us lean into our sufferings and praise God through them. Let's pray. Oh God, my God, I will ever praise you. Help us to hope in you. Help us to remind ourselves that you are our salvation. When we feel like you are far away, it is us who's retreated. Let us lean into you, Lord, and if it takes waves and breakers and waterfalls to throw us up against you, we pray for it. We ask you, break us against the rock of our salvation. Because we know when clinging to our rock, we will not drown. Thank you that as the psalmist prays for a judge, a defender, and deliverer, we pray in the name of our judge, our defender, and our deliverer, Jesus Christ, who was the final sacrifice, who became the altar for us, who became the object of our praise, our exceeding joy, our hope, our salvation, our God. It is in his name we pray, and it is in him we hope. Amen.